Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 102. There is a variety of news out there that we want to talk about. Uh, some little things, some we're going to spend more time on. Uh, nothing, there's no like big thing that we thought this is what we need to talk about. Um, in, in part because that's always a question of like uh, weighing how deep into it do we want to go? How relevant is it? Do we actually have proposals of what we could, how we could solve it? Or is this more just kind of a news overview of what we think that's happening in the world that's important? Today, we're going to do more of a news overview. Um, there's a couple of things that we're going to talk about more in depth, but, but in general, we're going to go over a variety of different things. And of course, I have Brad here with me. Say hello, Brad. Hello, Brad. Hello. Good boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm a good listener. I, I try real hard. <laughs> we begin by setting the bar low as usual. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure Dan knew from the get-go that, that whatever he wants from me is going to have to be real clear. <laughs> Don't just hand the baton over and expect me to say anything intelligent. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Um, one of the interesting things, that, so there is the Trump Mar-a-Lago stuff that's happening. Uh, there's an investigation going into Trump, and, and he may have taken uh, classified documents. I say may have giving it the, the most legal benefit of a doubt. I think at this point it's safe to say he did. So, so, take so Dan, the, the thing have. is, is it's very safe to say that because he turned over documents in the past. He's already turned over documents <laughs> since leaving office. So we know he took some. And you know, you know, reading into it, there there's there's a process. You're supposed to turn them over to the National Archives. Um this goes back to what we've talked about before, which is being a president is weird because you have just an obscene amount of power. You have obscene amounts of access to everything and you know a whole bunch of things that as soon as you're no longer president, theoretically, you shouldn't know anymore. You know what I mean? Yes, like, ideally, we'd wipe your memory. Yeah, yeah because, because now you have you – have, you know, regardless of what kind of documents you have, you have so much information that you should never have had if you didn't stay president. You know what I mean? It doesn't work. Yes, but it, yes. But it's the world we live in, and it's part of why, you know, when a president retires, he's he's done in terms of running for office. Like, he did his thing. It doesn't make sense for the president to run somewhere else. But in terms of these documents, it's unclear how cleanly this process happens on a regular basis. My, de my guess is Trump is not the first person to hold on to documents. Um... But I don't know. But I don't know. You know, how much of this <laughs> is Trump? So how much of this yeah. is Trump doing things incorrectly? And how much of this is because of the way, you know, power was turned over back, you know, last year that now there's renewed interest in it? And if it weren't for that renewed interest, no one would have ever cared about those yeah. documents that he kept. And one of the big things people have been talking about is the classified documents that he kept. Like, oh no, they're classified documents. It's like, yeah, a ton of the documents the president has are classified. Classified is just one classification rating and is one of the lower ones. There are many much higher classifications than just classified. And I'm not saying they're just they're just rating them as classified. Maybe they're saying classified generally. I don't know. But either way, the argument that just because Trump has left over classified documents doesn't mean that that what he did was wrong or that he broke the law. Those earlier times where he did all those wrong things and broke the law is probably what you should get him on. But anyways, <laughs> but but getting information about what happened does make sense. But the fact that he had documents on his house at 
you know, house is not the right word. His estate doesn't actually mean as much as a lot of people are playing it out to mean, is my personal opinion. Right. Often congressmen and others step in it. They do something like this that they shouldn't have. And I have never seen significant consequences. That worst case scenario, they step down. He's already gone. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where this could go. Um, I'm, I know there are legal briefings out there. And if you've listened to them, you're probably listening to us like, <laughs> clearly you guys are not following the, week, the daily update on this. And you are absolutely right. I'm trying really hard to care. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> I, I don't have to follow it to know that this is almost guaranteed to go nowhere. Because, of, because the president's just weird. It's a weird position. He had mm-hmm. access to everything. So he took it to his house. Okay. So he put some things maybe at risk where someone could walk in and steal them. All right. What do you do with that? Do you fine him? Do you suspend yeah. his like ex-president salary? No, and it, it's, it's an excellent point. I mean, how many times has a president faced criminal charges after leaving office, even when they've done something wrong in office. As far as I know, never. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, know, and, and I don't they're know really it. trying to, uh, to break that streak and it's clearly difficult. Yeah, it is. And rightfully so there, I know there was a, a switch in the case recently where they, uh, there was a judge had somebody appointed to review some things. Um, the idea being pulling some of the power out of the FBI's hands, which is uh, on paper, at least good for Trump, whatever that means. Um, but it, this is still, as far as I'm concerned, this uh, this whole event and the the hype around it are overrated. <laughs> it's still, and there's there's something I want to say about about why the system works this way because we've been talking a lot about how the president's messy and there's a lot of protections in place for government officials, and so far that's kind of been played off as as kind of a bad thing and and i just want to make a point here that there's there's a reason that it's done this way and if you look to other countries you'll see many examples of what happens when you don't have this and one of the most common examples is you'll have a party or a person in power and they will use the instrument of government to maintain that power and one of the most common things they can do is accuse all of their political adversaries, or at least their most politi- powerful political adversaries, of something illegal, and arrest them, and and do every harass them, and do everything they can to keep those those opposing people or parties out of power, using government as an instrument, and so having political figures and ex-government officials protected from that kind of a uh, yeah from that kind of abuse is an important part of the United States system. And there's, there's like, it's like the fact that you can't arrest a sitting president and the fact that you can't arrest a sitting congressman, except for very extreme things is because as soon as you give the government power to start arresting people who are the, you know, their direct political opposition, it, it's a slippery slope. And so, so regardless of how you feel about Trump and whether or not you think he should be criminally prosecuted, because I'm not saying that he shouldn't be criminally prosecuted. I'm saying he's probably not going to be because of these systems, because it's more important that there be a place for political dissidents than yes. that Trump face criminal charges. 
it's more important that there can be a serious disagreement between two parties without one party using government to lock up the other party. That as soon as we reach that point, we've got a much bigger problem on our hands. Kind of like the main concern with Trump staying in power, you know, with the the changing of the election, it wasn't about Trump staying in power. It was about if Trump stays in stays in office after January of 2021, then the democratic system is no longer working. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. was the problem. Is that that was the threat to democracy, not the threat to Biden. And the same thing goes on the other side. It's not about the threat to Trump. It's about the threat to the system. Right. Right. It, it, that's a great point. That there's to some degree we say, yeah, what he did, uh, what what so and so did, Trump, uh, whatever elected official did was uh, not great. We also chose him, and he's the representative. There's a, there was a there's a funny story I heard from a friend whose ancestor. This was some years ago. Uh, he ran for Congress. I think it was state Congress. And the day he got elected, he was in jail for some kind of crime. And when he was elected, they were just like, "Oh, I guess, I guess you're our congressman," and they just let him out, and he went to work. <laughs> It's just like, like, and that makes some sense, you know, a little bit of sense. Uh, maybe, maybe that information, if he did what he did afterward, um, yeah, we, uh, we, no, and and in that case, it wasn't, it wasn't actually about him and what he did and whether or not he was the right congressman. You know what I mean? It was the fact that we don't want a precedent of saying, yeah, normally congressmen can't be in jail unless we really don't want them, you know, to be yeah, our yeah, congressman. Yeah. In that case, it's okay. No, it's, you know what? He got arrested for drunk driving and that was incredibly yeah. stupid, but it's more important that we honor this principle. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. What you were saying about political retaliation is a big deal. Um, in fact, that's a, that's a good segue into uh, dark Brandon. As it's as the meme goes, so uh, Joe Biden uh, gave a speech. Uh, at this point, you've no doubt heard about it if you've been paying attention. Um, he uh, he talked about you know most most of the speech ninety nine point nine percent of the speech was actually pretty generic, uh, modern political rhetoric. It was mm-hmm. uh, it it was noncommittal. It was vague. It tried to draw a broad circle that invited unity and then where he really came into uh where this really caught public attention was in a a short couple lines in which he suggested that maga republicans are how did he phrase it enemies of the democracy they're they're uh dangerous extremists that must be stopped um well brad's pulling up the specific wording <laughs> Even that isn't that far out there. I mean, that's the kind of thing that your average political pundit says all the time. But what was weird was to have the president say it in a formal speech, to label a part of the country. And he spent, to be fair to him, this, this was not well captured by people bashing him for his speech. The context, he tried to draw the circle that, that he can, the good people circle, as broad as possible, he included Republicans. He excluded extreme MAGA Republicans, which he tried to emphasize was a smaller group. That you know, he wanted. He wasn't trying to condemn the whole Republican Party. 
So, so you want some quotes? I do want some quotes. And then so, you can make the point you made to me that I think was really good about context being irrelevant. So, so yeah. So first I want to read the, the main line. Donald Trump. So quote, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. So that's the statement is the MAGA Republicans and Donald Trump are extremists and they threaten the very foundation of our republic. Um, and so, of course, a lot of those things make sense. You know, the Donald Trump part of it does make sense. You know, he does seem to represent an extremism, um, at least in some ways. I'm, I, extremism is maybe it's not a, the right word. It's a terrible word. term. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, the, it's the wrong word for Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump absolutely threatened the very foundations of our republic. Yes. He wasn't even close to succeeding, yes. but he did threaten them. Yes. You know what I mean? And we, throwing that accusation at him is completely legitimate. We tried to make that case very carefully in an episode. So if you hear uh -huh. that and you're like, wait, why are these guys hating on Donald Trump? Because um, obviously we're not fans of Biden. <laughs> we can be not fans of either of them. <laughs> no, no. And, and, and all of, and that's the thing is all of our talk about whether or not he should face criminal charges what we 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 believe that what he did was unethical and if not illegal because of the the gray areas completely wrong yeah and we're not saying he shouldn't face criminal charges because what he did wasn't that bad yes. but rather because of the nature of the presidency which is yes. completely different yes. In the we're not condoning trump's actions at all right the specific thing that we would pin down on trump and say this is awful and this should this is what really condemns him in our mind was when he tried to switch out electors, state-chosen electors that went that were chosen by the electoral process, right, the, the voting process, he instead of trying to have a second vote or to try and clean up the problems that he claimed were there, he tried to just toss them out and replace them with people for him. That is that is classic dictator corruption. You rig the yeah. system so that you win the election you override any democratic thing you you simply say yeah democratic you use the instrument of government necessary. to yeah. stay in power yep yep and he he legitimately tried to do that all of the other stuff uh there were a few other things that were certainly gray to say the least but most of the other stuff i think was fine that was the point where for me there was a clear line crossed where we go this is naked corruption he should mm -hmm. not be president so, so, so that's the quote that Biden makes. The MAGA Republicans. That's the, the it, that's the the big the big deal is changing it from just Donald Trump to all MAGA Republicans because MAGA Republicans are Donald Trump supporting Republicans, which according to the votes is a lot of Republicans represent our extremists that threaten the foundations of our republic. That's a bold statement. He goes on to clarify, and this is this is where it gets weird. So for, this is in the very next paragraph. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. So right there, he's saying most, because not the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Most Republicans are not this. And then he says, I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. So that's him walking it back immediately, right? Yeah. But then the very next paragraph, these are, I'm not cutting anything out. These are the, the four paragraphs in a row. Next, next paragraph, and this is straight from the White House you know, government site. But there is no question that there are up, the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and their, 
and the MAGA Republicans, and that is a threat to this country. And so, so Dan, so first of all, it doesn't matter how much you walk it back. As soon as you make that statement, that's all people are going to hear. Mm-hmm. But reading these these walking back statements, he actually doesn't walk it back that much. He's basically saying lots of Republicans aren't this, but all of their leaders, all the people in power, and even those non-MAGA yeah. Republicans are being forced to act like MAGA Republicans. And therefore, we might as well treat most Republicans as MAGA Republicans. You know what I mean? And so you're left with an out, technically. You know what I mean? He's technically walked it back so that he's not saying all Republicans are MAGA Republicans, but he keeps driving it back to that gist of a lot of Republicans are MAGA Republicans and the important Republicans because it's dominated and driven. In other words, the party is controlled by MAGA Republicans, and they are extremists who threaten the very foundations of our republic. Yeah, hence the Republican Party is a problem. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's, there's a clear... He's, he's actually very clear here, <laughs> which, is, which is nice. Um, he's, he's being very specific. Um, so the Republican side, uh, a lot of the headlines said things like, Biden brands Republicans terrorists. They're they're extremists who are a threat to our democracy. What does that make them? Hmm. Let's pick terrorists. That's a that's a that's not wholly inaccurate, but it's not exactly what he said, right? It's kind of in that vicinity, maybe. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this. Uh, what do you what do you make of it, Brad? Yeah. So so you look up extremist, you know, on Google, and you you know you got the Oxford languages dictionary and they define extremist as a person who holds extreme or fanatical political or religious views especially one who resorts to or advocates extreme action so no it is not terrorist but it is basically as close as you can get to terrorists when people describe terrorists you know fanatical political or religious views extreme action I mean, these are these are all words used to describe it's, terrorists, and so yes. it's 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 the next lower word. You know what I mean? Extremist is one step below terrorist, and so conservatives taking that stretch is is a little stretch. You know, it finally clicked for me. I did I did feel like it was a reach at first, but now as you're talking, the the word extremist in my political memory, which is short because I'm young. Um, but in terms of like what's actually, you know, live happening, um, mm-hmm. extremist was almost always violent extremists. And it was yeah. almost always associated with things like suicide bombers. Yeah. That's just That's where the term. Yes. That is where the term originated for me. That's where it became a part of my political vocabulary. And I started to hear it. So so in my head, when I hear extremist, I think of violent and uh, and uh, the connection to terrorism makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. So there this is. A negative, as negative a label as you can get without being more explicit, I suppose. Um, I, again, I, I heard the speech. I read the speech. Uh, I didn't hear the speech. I'm not going to listen to the speeches. Just shoot me now if, the, if there's clapping over and over again. <laughs> I did see. I did see the fun pictures of him in the like dark red background. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Those did crack me up. Uh, 
it's, it's, it's the kind of, it's dark humor. I'm not saying it should just be funny. It's not just funny. But um, this kind of language is inappropriate. He shouldn't have said that. It, does it mean anything? Is anything going to come of it? No. No, I don't think so. Um, could he have said something better? Yes. Would anybody have listened? Mm, no. <laughs> no, because they give speeches all the time that are barely covered. Yes. You don't cover speeches anymore. No one, no one's listening. No one's like, I really need some hope. When is Biden's next speech? I mean, if, yeah. uh, hopefully no one's like that. I guess probably some young kids are. So, some young like college students are probably like just getting into it and they're full of life and, <laughs> and enthusiasm. And they're not nearly as cynical as we are. And they may actually be listening to the speeches. Anyone involved in politics who has influence and has looked at this stuff is not paying attention to this other than to see if they can pull something out of it to then attack him with. Well, and, and it's not just about attacking him, Dan. I, I think this is definitely a fundamental shift in, in Biden's yes. tactics. And, and it's, it's driven by the upcoming midterms, most definitely. Um, part of it has to, be, has to be based off of the fact that, that Trump continues to be doing things. Um, don't ask me why. I, how I wish Trump had, had just left it alone, left the public arena for good, you know, put his tail between his legs in shame and just walk away. Or hung his head high and proudly walk. I don't, either way is fine. But he's just, he's just too much of an egotistical maniac. Sorry, I meant to say celebrity to do something like that. Um, Yeah. And so, and so, so here he is, he continues, he continues to cause problems. He continues to have a surprising amount of influence amongst the republicans and so what president biden is trying to do here coming up to the midterms and then eventually you know the next presidential election is he's literally trying to reframe the republican party as the trump party as the trump extremist party in order to drive the moderates towards you know the democratic party and then of course also generate solid turnout for the democrats because yeah. as you've seen before the democrats are are happy to vote against trump that's a rallying cry they can get behind and so instead of the midterms being some boring unimportant election no now it is an election to determine the fate of our country just like in you know 2020 yes that speech was an election speech the one that mm-hmm, the Biden mm-hmm. gave there. He talked about the soul of America and everything. And so and so it's it's preparation for that. It's a reframing of that. And yeah. that that is important politically because that You're could right. affect the midterms right. depending on how well it's it's believed. You're right. Most speeches are very generic. This speech was is, I think, as you were saying, it's symbolic of a rebranding and a reframing of of, of the current state of affairs. If you wanted to because the midterms could be about inflation and <laughs> And uh, the economy, you know, the interest rate that's that the Federal Reserve is about to move up another mm-hmm, seventy-five, mm-hmm. another uh, three quarters of a percent. Um, yeah, the fact that generally people are pretty unhappy with right. how things are going right now, right? It could, which typically tends to, to do poorly for the you know the party in power. Yeah, when things are just going poorly generally, it could be about. I don't know if you heard about this, Brad. This this one probably warrants an entire episode to look at because we could we do comparisons of other uh, other nations to ours and talk about the why because there's so many variables. Life expectancy in the U.S. is going down. 
It's been going down for a couple years, and it's now down three years. Really? And our life expectancy is already lower than most other countries that we'd compare ourselves with. Significantly. Well, I mean, the good thing is, is since Social Security probably won't be in existence by the time I retire, that's uh, less money I need to save up. Yeah. Because I was, you know, I'm over here 28 and I'm already like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. But there we go. If I, if I could just die before I retire, problem solved. This solves Problem yeah. solved. Social security saved. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real wealth problem in the United States because you live so much longer than you work. And when you only live as long as you work, it's actually very easy to, to stay well off your entire life, you know. <laughs> It's that not working phase that gets real difficult. Canada is now uh, going out of their way to remind people that at any time they would like to, they can euthanize them. So if you're particularly miserable, Canadian doctors are there for you. <laughs> there have been a couple headlines. I don't know if they're exceptions, um, but there are people who are like, you know, they're at the hospital, they're getting care for some kind of problem. It looks like it's going to be chronic. And some, somebody high up in the hospital will come and talk to them and be like, Friendly reminder, you know, this is how I imagine the conversation goes. Friendly reminder, we could just kill you. <laughs> and then you don't have to worry about the hospital, your chronic problem you know, or whatever it is. I, you know, it's, it's fun. Here in the United States, we're, we're pretty, pretty anti even allowing people to kill themselves. Over in Canada, not only are they okay with they're it, like, they encourage they're, it. They're over there starting to uh, try and, that's right, try and persuade people. <sighs> That's oh, terrible. It is terrible. That's There's terrible. The fact that that, you know, in extreme cases, I can see why people would uh, would consider that option. But if that ever becomes common, you know, we're at the end of the end. You know, you've <laughs> you got know a your problem, society's yeah. in decline. Anyway, back to so the health thing going down. Right, these are the kind of things that that people feel. Um, more people are dying. It's a, a housing market is a ridiculously expensive. If you're trying to get into it. And we'll, we'll actually talk about that actually in a little bit. But all of these things suggest you should be frustrated with the powers that be. And that's, tr that's usually what happens in politics. The good news is Biden and Trump both want the election to be about Trump <laughs> and, and about whether or not Trump should have gotten elected and all of that stuff. And Trump is more than happy to make it about that too he's that's all he thinks about and so mm -hmm. if biden wants yeah, the to talk worst about possible it, thing the worst possible thing that could happen to the country is to have trump be the republican nominee in a couple years that is hands down the worst possible thing that could happen because it's not going to be about the issues it's not going to be about the things that matter as you were saying yeah man. it's gonna be a rehashing of something that's already settled and already done and, and that's exactly what we don't want. But even here in the midterms, what what President Biden is trying to do is to reframe from the economy and all of these other things to a fight for democracy against the MAGA extremists. And and that's going to be it's going to be a hard pivot. But but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll see. Uh, there is some truth to what Biden said in the speech about the MAGA Republicans controlling the Republican Party. Um, obviously, Trump has name recognition. And so if he decides to run, it'll be almost impossible to for him to lose. Uh, but even setting that aside, the funding that the Republican Party is trying to raise for their candidates and things 
is all being diverted and coming uh, and going to thing uh, various Trump, uh, what's the word, PACs and uh, his own uh, campaign funds. Um, people are still financially, they financially, the people, the donors still view it as Trump's party. And so uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through that, he really does have all of the control still over the party. He really is still the, the, the head of the party at this point. And like Brad, I had really hoped that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, honestly, honestly, that baffles me that that anyone would still donate money to Trump on a large enough scale that it's noticeable. You know what I mean? Yes. That it's not just, you know, 40, 40 nut jobs donating 20 bucks to him, but that there's serious donations continuing to pour in is baffling. No, yeah. It's yeah. just baffling. Yeah, this, when the, the central uh, Republican, what, what is it called? There's the DNC, the RNC, Republican National Committee. Yeah, RNC. And the Republican National mm-hmm. Committee uh, sends out fundraising things. It has to talk about Trump or they don't get any money. <laughs> it has to be about Trump. Like there's still a uh, – Trump isn't the only one. Trump and Biden are not the only ones still stuck in the 2020 election. Uh, a lot of the Republicans are. A lot of the Republicans are, fortunately. And uh, it'd be so easy right now for Republicans to win elections. Biden is so unpopular. Now, those polls are turning. Biden is becoming more popular. He's still really unpopular, but he's becoming more popular uh, with the passage of the climate change stuff um, that I think was labeled uh, falsely falsely named after uh, uh, inflation. The Inflation Reduction (laughs) Act, yeah. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is all climate stuff, um, a couple other victories, political victories that he's had um, in terms of executive orders and things, the loan forgiveness, all of this stuff has uh, have been signs of life to Democratic voters, not to mention the, the change uh, as with regards to abortion. That does seem to be motivating a significant amount of people. So there were some special elections for congressmen that happened early, but you know, prior to the midterm. And uh, Democrats did much better in those. I believe they, the two that I'm aware of, they won um, and, and outperformed the polls significantly. And, uh, and so the midterm may actually end up being closer than we thought. And all of this is... Yeah, and, yeah, and, and all of this is, is going to affect the, the midterm. But that momentum is not going to last two years. You know what I mean? Yes. The things he's doing right now are specifically to, to help boost the midterms but two years from now could be a totally different picture if Trump isn't. <laughs> yeah, yes, or it could be the same picture we saw in 2020. <laughs> it could be, no, the election, I did win the election. You're, oh gosh. I was about to say, I was about to say not even the same picture as 2020 because now it's, it's the, the arguments that were had after. Yes, election, yes. You know what I mean? It's even worse. It's even less about the issues. It's even less productive. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, I, so I guess what we're saying is, first of all, we're incredibly disappointed in the Republicans who cannot get over Trump. Um, yeah, I just want to sit on that for a second. I should have said something else and moved on, but no, I'm just it's I, I it's frustrating. It in their defense, I can understand how you might end up there that the last few years, it's become quite obvious to most people that the government will happily lie to your face. You know, major news outlets will lie to your face. You know, we've seen that with COVID time and time again. And 
So at that point, how do you know what's real? And if you're already a dedicated member of one team, one side, you know, you're part of the Republican Party and your candidate loses and says it's all a lie and it's all a scam and that he's only done good things and all the bad things are just fabrications. I can see how the easiest thing to do is just to believe that. You just double down on it. You don't have anything reliable, so you double down on whatever it is here, wherever you're Mm -hmm. at. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the the tribal response. But the thing is, is... Yeah, it is a tribal response. And so that aspect of it makes sense. I just, I thought more people would be able to see past that. And hopefully more people will be able to see past that as time goes on, as you get more distance from the events. Yeah. So we'll see. It just looks right now like it may take another four years after this. Longer than we expected. Yep. Okay. So let's move into a couple other. We've got two. (laughs) Every time we say, every time I think something's going to be short, we end up putting more into it and talking about it more than, than expected. Um, all of those things kind of blended together. Uh, the, a lot of, lots, lots of different things there, but all of them kind of pointing towards the midterm and things affecting the, the political world right now and, and, and framing the direction and momentum of the country, which right now is turning back towards the Democrats, um, but they're still underwater. Right now, we've been talking a lot about uh, energy and economics lately, about uh, incoming famine and things. Um, one of the questions that people are always wondering and economists are always looking for is, are we in a bubble? Uh, the idea being that how much of the, of the increase in value we see in a particular part of the market, most commonly housing, we, that's the one most people are familiar with. We had the the big housing bubble in 2008, the prices of houses were rising rapidly and, uh, and seemingly endlessly. And then abruptly they plummeted. And the question is, what is the state of the economy right now? Are we, are we seeing real growth or are the increase in prices uh, bubbles? And of course, this is going to be confused because inflation is increasing everything, right? We've got actual shortages. We've got actual inflation. And we may have a bubble. And that's... That's what we want to talk about for a minute. And housing is the easiest place to look at it. And and I just want to want to note there that inflation is almost always accompanied with a bubble because inflation is not real sustainable growth. It's not a real increase in value. And so so it's worth noting that the fact that there is so much inflation is actually a bad thing, not a good thing when you're saying, is this yes. an excuse for what's currently happening? You know what I mean? It's like, yes, it may be, but that doesn't that doesn't justify it. That actually means it doesn't it's mean more our, likely to our be base bubble. is solid somehow, that the things underneath are actually solid. It's the opposite. That's right. Off uh, by the business theory that we uh, ascribe to, the uh, uh, inflation is the main driver of bubbles because it leads to malinvestment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and inflation is definitely something that that we've had a lot of. So so the question is 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 for the housing market and the stock market, are we in a bubble? Stock market's an easy answer, you know. It's almost always in a bubble. You know what I mean? If it's going up, it's most likely a bubble, and if it's going down, it's most likely not because the stock market historically has been a long series of bubbles, which is why it's not just a straight a straight yeah. line, but a very, yeah. a very jagged one. The stock market is just historically 
unreliable in the short term and only reliable That's in the what long I was term. Say, part yeah. of the and part of the long term reliability does come from inflation. That the stock market is always going to go up. Um, you know what I mean? Because inflation is going up. The housing market is somewhat similar, but is more stable. It's more stable. If you look at if you look at the the median home price in the United States, you know it's it's much more stable than the stock market. You know what I mean? It's not a bunch of ups and downs. It's it's more of a general increase. Except of course, you know, if you look back at the last, you know, 30 years, you'll notice a nice smooth increase in the in the median home impri- home price in the United States. But when you look at the consumer price index adjusted price, in other words, if you adjust for inflation, it's actually pretty steady in the 90s where it's actually staying about the same price. You know, the prices are slowly going up, but only at the rate of inflation. You know what I mean? They're not increasing higher than that. And then you have the, you know, 2008 housing crisis bubble, which starts about eight or nine years before, where there's this this increase, this rapid increase up, up, and up, and then the bubble pops. And then, as Dan pointed out earlier, you don't just have a sharp drop-off, but you actually have home prices decrease for about seven, seven or eight years before they start to to increase again, which is which is wild. You know, we always think of it as this drop-off and then prices resume, but really it was a long period of time. If you look at the median home price, the highest home price, which was about about 2007, I believe. Yeah, it was somewhere in there. It takes, it takes a long time to reach those prices again. It takes, uh, yeah, it takes somewhere around like nine years to get back to those yeah, prices. Yeah, it's like, and it's five you know, it years to the bottom. It drops off and then yeah. grows back up. Five years to the bottom, four years to slowly make your way up back to that point, even with inflation, which is crazy. Because as those those real prices are dropping, that's even with inflation. Over years, home prices are dropping, which is crazy when you consider how inflation can be anywhere from 3 to 10%. You know yeah. what I mean? So you have to add that on to the decrease in cost, which is wild. So, so then after that, you have this steady, steady increase in home prices until 2020 where it absolutely skyrockets up to today. And and so now you have home prices that are way higher, even adjusted for inflation, were way higher than they ever were in 2006, 2007. So that's your first red flag, is that we talk about that being this huge bubble back in the day, and yet housing prices now, adjusted for inflation, are way higher than they were then, which is crazy. Which is crazy because you'd assume that adjusting for inflation, the that big, was a yes. bigger bubble. Not necessarily. And then you start looking at the markets now and you start to see a bit of a dip. And you also have to look at a number of other factors like during 2020, there was a slowdown in home construction. But that home construction has picked back up. So the supply is starting to increase again. And... You also had a ton of speculative buyers where people felt like if they didn't buy, they were going to be left out. And you had also companies that were speculating. They were investing in order to make a profit. And so as soon as that starts to tip, starts to turn, you could very easily have a repeat of the 2008 financial crisis in the housing market and potentially even worse. And and Dan, I believe you have a, 
a quote from uh from somebody about yes, that. Yes, let me pull it up. So I, this was this came to our attention. In some ways, we're always in a bubble. Um, there's always going to be. It, it, I think the easiest way to understand bubbles is as malinvestment. It's it's people overvaluing things and uh, investing their resources in those things, not realizing that they're they're not as value as they per, as valuable as they perceive them to be. Now, value is ultimately subjective, uh, but the idea mm-hmm. is that they buy a home, as Brad was saying, thinking that the price will go up and they can sell it later for more. And it turns out that that's not the case. Um, not always the case, right? Eventually, you his prices are bid up and up and up. That stops being the case. So this is a quote from uh, from billionaire Grantham. What's his first name? Mister Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's Jeremy Grantham. I, I don't know where this person has been. I don't spend a lot of time reading like business finance people, you know, trying to follow the best person to invest in. I know the, I know the mainstay names, but uh, Jeremy mm-hmm. Grantham seemed vaguely familiar. I've probably heard it before. He's known for predicting uh, a variety of the, of different bubbles in the past, including the 2008 bubble that we mentioned, including the, uh, the tech bubble in 2000, including a different bubble in Japan. Um, he said, in January, that he feels certain at this point that we're in not only a bubble, but a super bubble. Mm-hmm. There have mm-hmm. been specifically the housing market, or generally, generally. Gotcha. Um, and he had some really interesting ways of describing. It. I'm going to read a few quotes from him. As bubbles form, they give us a ludicrously overstated view of our real wealth, which encourages us to spend accordingly. Then, as bubbles break, they crush most of those dreams and accelerate the negative economic forces on the way down. <laughs> In reference to the Fed, he says, to allow bubbles, let alone help them along, is simply bad economic policy. That's what the Fed does when they decrease interest rates. Um, and he compares this, he, when he describes this as a super bubble, a super bubble is on the scale of the Great Depression. And the reason that he, he thinks this is a super bubble as opposed to a normal bubble is that it's not just affecting one industry. It's not just the 2008 housing market crash. It will be a housing market crash. Plus a crash in commodities. Uh, plus a crash perhaps in the currency. Plus a crash perhaps in, uh, mm-hmm. in the various tech things. Um, and so this a, a wider scale crash in a variety of spheres, um, he predicted it could wipe out as much as 50% of the stock market wealth, which would be ridiculous. Um, that's the... It doesn't average out kindly for you. Uh, it that for some people will entirely eliminate their savings. The the thing the thing that I want to say is just some common sense things because I know a lot of people are like, no, this is we're the argument keeps being made that COVID happened, things went bad, and now we're picking back up. And we've talked about this before with food production. We're talking about it now with the stock market and the housing market. That's just not it's not accurate. I mean, if you look at the stock market. Yes, it dropped down in 2020 and it's picked back up since then. So that now we're actually doing much better in the stock market. Like if you look at the Dow Jones, Dow Jones is doing much better now than it was doing in 2019. But then you look at the real world and you look at production and you look at what's actually happening with companies and different things and businesses and it's and it's not the same picture. You yes. know what I mean? The the world is not back to the production in that it was 
that it was at pre-COVID, and yet the stock market is way higher than it was pre-COVID. That should tell you that there's a disconnect and that therefore the growth you're seeing in the stock market is unsustainable. And, and the same kind of thing applies with the housing market where it's like, if this is natural, then why hasn't this been happening all the time? You know what I mean? If this is natural, then why are prices starting to drop all of a sudden? You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's a disconnect here. And part of the disconnect is really simple. It's because most people, well, a huge majority of people are, are homeowners or have some interest in the stock market. And those people have a vested interest in these things not being bubbles. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? If you already own a home, you want values to keep going up. If you have money in the stock market, you want the stock market to keep going up. And people who are invested in the stock market, seriously invested, want you to stay in. Because if you pull out, they're screwed. You know yeah. what I mean? There's a natural, almost you know, blinder mentality that as long as we keep putting money into these systems, they won't collapse yet, which is actually true. You know what I mean? As long as you keep dumping money in the stock market, the stock market won't collapse. It'll only collapse once you start pulling money out. You know, we could all be in poverty and and eating hand to mouth with, you know, no no real life, you know, quality of life, but we could still be dumping money in the stock market and consider ourselves financially wealthy you know what i mean it can be completely disconnected from reality but at a certain point people will stop putting money into it and start pulling their money out and that's when things start to change and so it can happen all of a sudden or it can happen gradually but the more you look at it the more you look at the housing market and the stock market and and what's actually going on in the real world and you have to wonder are things going to change like the housing market people always say oh yeah well there were bad lending practices, you know, back in, you know, 2006, 2007, back back leading up to those years. And so a lot of people foreclosed. And so as long as that doesn't happen this time, the market won't collapse. And it's like, okay, well, there's a few things that that are wrong. First of all, yes, you know, loan practices have improved some. But if you're telling me people right now aren't house broke, you're completely wrong. There are so many people who are dumping a lot of money into houses over the past two years in order to get in before it's too late. And so they're putting a large portion of their paycheck into their home, which means that if, as Dan was saying, not just the housing market, but other markets start to struggle and those people have financial instability of any kind they're much more likely to sell that house because they're so close to the edge. Even if they don't foreclose, they're much more likely to sell it. You know what I mean? That kind of instability means that the market is more volatile. And if you have the 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 actual economy more volatile as well, it just it it's a compounding effect. Yes. Uh, well said. If you think of I, I said earlier that in uh, a bubble is essentially a malinvestment. Um Brad what you were saying explains it really well. The idea is that you have you have the perceived value of the thing, and that can permanently go up. You can actually forever increase the value of stocks, but it won't do you any good <laughs> because there's the there's the reality of the actual stuff that you have, and uh, mm-hmm. the uh, the increased value of houses 
in terms of you can sell it for more money, does not necessarily mean we're more wealthy. Doesn't necessarily mean we have more stuff. Um, just means mm-hmm. the demand for the houses has increased in it. And it has, and it has in part because it's become a positive feedback loop where, as you were saying, people invest in it and then they have a vested interest in it, literally, <laughs> invest. Um, and then that interest leads them leads people to invest more. This is when we were talking about the China economy, the the state was encouraging people who have a house to get a second one and people who have a second one to get a third and people who have a third to get a fifth, I think was the way they'd phrased it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Because this will continue to drive the prices. This will continue to fund this scheme and keep prices of housing high and keep it from collapsing. The problem is you're not paying for a house to keep the market from collapsing. You want to live in it or you want to turn a profit, right? And buy other things. Ultimately, it's how Mm -hmm. it connects to stuff that matters. And in these cycles, you get so disconnected from that, that it looks like we have a lot more wealth, right? We see the value of the house that you have. Did you become richer? I don't know. You're still living in the same house, right? It doesn't doesn't look like Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. You still have access to the same exact amount of consumption. We didn't produce anything more. Did you get richer? Maybe if you sold it and got out and then happened to be able to go buy something cheap somewhere else, maybe you did turn a profit there, right? It's someone someone mm-hmm. else. But that's not but that's most, not most people. people. Yeah. Because if housing prices keep going up, the only way you get out of your house is by selling it for a lot and buying another house for a lot, and therefore you're not making this huge profit. You're actually just, you know, you know, you have a similar mortgage than you did before. You know what I mean? Not much has actually changed in terms of your financial prosperity, let alone your real prosperity. Yeah. Now, if you're talking, if you're someone who owns five houses, maybe this is a different conversation, right? But for most people who are living in the house that they own or who are buying a house to live in, Mm -hmm. this is... Yeah. And speculators do have an impact on the market. But when push comes to shove, most homes are just owned by people who only own one home. You know what I mean? They, They are still, you know... The majority of homeowners. Yes, and ultimately, every house is valuable to the degree that there are people who want to live there. And even if it's mm-hmm. as their fifth mm-hmm. home, right? And so as people buy mm-hmm. up houses that they don't want to live in, that they're just trying to make money on, and they buy them from other people who wanted to make money on them, and they're going to sell them to other people who want to make money on them, right? There's a clear problem mm-hmm. here. <laughs> also, we're scaling up our, our construction. Construction is going to try and catch up to the demand which has become largely speculation. And at some point, that Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. just a house of cards. I think it's worth a lot. You think it's worth a lot. No one's actually going to live in it. At some point, somebody has to buy it to live in it, (laughs) to use it, to consume it. And otherwise... Yeah, but as as soon as it starts to drop, those speculators are going to get out. Yeah, they're going to run hard because they're going to realize, oh, wait, I don't want to be the one holding the back. You don't want to be the last person with it. And what's the resulted, if you think of it in terms of like, what good has been done for the economy? Well, among the speculators, a lot of money traded hands. What value was Yeah, and the speculators who were good at their job made money. And a lot of homeowners who were not well-informed lost that. And other speculators lost that. Yeah, it's an exchange of money. It is not a significant, there's no value creation here. Nothing was produced. I mean, you get the produced value of the service, I guess, right? But in terms of like hard goods, we didn't create anything. 
So there's one other topic that we wanted to talk about. Uh, at this point, we're going to postpone it to our next episode, and it could become the entire episode, depending. Um, it, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who is apparently not a robot, despite the memes, not an <laughs> alien. <laughs> he had a conversation with Joe Rogan that was uh, many hours long and was actually really good. And there were a number of interesting things that came out of there, one of which you've probably heard about because it made big news. And it was about the FBI telling Facebook to censor the laptop of Hunter Biden way back before the election, right? This was something that actually could have turned the election um, if, if the social media sites didn't shut it down. That was what the headlines were saying. That's not what happened. And not only do we want to clarify what actually happened, the FBI did not tell them to, you know, did not go through Facebook to shut these things down. But the insight that came from Mark Zuckerberg into how it works and how Facebook goes around uh, banning things and, uh, and selecting what things to, to censor and what not to was extremely interesting, extremely interesting. And a lot of it was about fact-checking. Yeah, and it's, it's also extremely relevant because more and more social media has become one of the major news yes. channels and censorship has become a large yes. part of that in this post-COVID world. And so, so how social media sites are censoring, what they're choosing to censor actually is incredibly important and has a very yeah. large impact, which is what that part of what that episode discussing, you know, the, you know the misinformation and fact-checking was about, you know, was the fact that Facebook influenced an election. Yes. yes. And there are so many interesting things that came out of that conversation. We're going to talk about some of them. Um, and as I said, to talk about fact-checking in general, uh, it's, it's a, it's an interesting world and I'll, I'll leave it at that. I told Brad, I'd be brief summarizing this <laughs> very hard for me. Um, promises may, were made you're like yeah we'll just talk about it right now you know and this one thing leads to another next thing you know it's a two-hour episode <laughs> which which some people would appreciate but i gotta go to work so there we go <laughs> one of the interesting things that we may go back and revisit with it as well is the is uh, some of the covid fact checking because if there was ever a display of why of of obvious problems with the idea that we'll just check the facts <laughs> the whole covid thing is is a prime example of prime this. example uh, not to mention of why there's so much distrust of government so we'll we'll talk about that another time so so stay tuned for next week and we'll talk about at least the mark zuckerberg interview and and i think we'll probably t discuss fact checking as well because they they you know in covid because they go together so well so stay tuned and with that thank you for listening this has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.